Well, this has been a really beautiful time of worship together, and it's going to continue in just a few moments, but while you're grabbing your Bibles, I feel like I need to add my own voice to this moment by telling you that this has been a really heavy week for me, perhaps one of the heaviest in my entire life. And as I experienced that heaviness, I realized that there are people in our community and people in our church, brothers and sisters, who, for them, they feel a disproportionate amount of heaviness. Our black brothers and sisters in Christ, for whom the events of the past week and a half have caused far greater hurt and fear and anger than I could ever feel. And so what do you do in a situation like that? I did the only thing that I know to do, which is to reach out and lean in and and spend time with people and have conversations and listen And I have to tell you, it was one of the most heavy, hopeful, sad, shocking, enlightening experiences of my life. So many conversations with every possible human emotion involved, conversation after conversation. I spoke with a sister in Christ in our church who shared with me that when she comes to church, on Sundays, every single Sunday when she sits down, she looks around the sanctuary and she realizes that I, she told me, I, every Sunday I realize I am one of the only people of color in a room that's almost predominantly white people. And she wasn't saying that as a criticism. She was just saying, this is just my reality. This is just an observation of reality. And of course, I know that because my wife, who is half Korean, she has told me that time and again. That's, that's her experience at all as well in our church to sit and look around and realize she's the only, only half Korean in a, in a room full of predominantly white people. And that provides for us an opportunity, an opportunity that we can miss, but an opportunity nonetheless to be people who really take a posture of humility with one another and and listen well and ask others in our community about their experience in our church. I had a conversation this week with a dear brother in Christ, and he told me stories of his life as a black man in our community. And one of the things he told me was that he will have moments where he walks into certain settings in our community, and he told me he... He said, I have to put on my happy black man face. This is his words. Because I, 
I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't, I don't want to come across as a threat in certain situations. And I thought, I have no idea what that would be like. I had several conversations this week where people that I love reflected to me, you know, Adam, we have felt really unheard. And we have felt that you've really fallen short as a leader to understand our experiences and to use your voice to speak up and open up dialogue about racism and injustice in our world and in our church. And you know what? That's true. They were right to say that to me. And I needed to hear that. And I, I need to reflect that to, to you, to our church family. And so I thought throughout this week, what to do, what to do with this moment, where to go in the scriptures. And as I prayed and listened and sought the spirit, interestingly enough, I actually kept coming back to the book of Daniel to precisely where we are. And the reason for that is that I, as I read the text, I kept thinking this text actually speaks really powerfully to the moment that we're in in our nation, to the moment that we're in right now in our church. Because the overarching message of Daniel chapter 2 is that the world is in desperate need of outside intervention. We need help. And it's going to have to come from outside. Our world is in desperate need of the intervention of a truly righteous king, finally, and a truly righteous kingdom. And it's never going to come from within this world because whatever we're doing here, it's not working. And it will never work as long as it's powered by human ingenuity, human power, or human wisdom, or what we perceive to be human wisdom. We need God to intervene, River West. We need God to reestablish his kingdom. We need God to respond to our lament and show up and bring finally the king and the kingdom that our hearts are longing for. And amazingly, that's the message of the dream that God sent Nebuchadnezzar. That was what the whole dream was about. And so at last, we discover the content of the dream. You know, last week, if you were with us, we, we left off this epic story and we didn't even get to the content of the dream. Well, today we find out what the dream was and we find out the interpretation of that dream. Will you look at it with me, Daniel chapter 2? I'm starting in verse 31. Daniel's standing now in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what happens next. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out 
by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. And there it is. There's the dream that kept Nebuchadnezzar up night after night after night. We, we hear it and we think, I don't get it. <laughs> so this is the nightmare that caused Nebuchadnezzar to have sleepless nights. I don't actually have very vivid nightmares. When I was a child, all of my nightmares involved really massive spiders under my blankets. <laughs> and that would keep me up at night. But the reader's reading this and going, I don't understand why this would keep Nebuchadnezzar up at night. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 1, the text tells us that he had these dreams. So he had these dreams, and his spirit was troubled. It's as if the dream perhaps God haunted Nebuchadnezzar night after night after night. Now, I could imagine that causing you to be sleepless if every time you went to bed or every time you dozed back to sleep, you had the same dream with the same image, and that appears to be what's happening here, God haunting Nebuchadnezzar, and it rattled him because he knew that this was a dream about his position and his place of power and rule, and the dream ends with a smashing. And I just imagine what this moment was like for Nebuchadnezzar. Think about it, to, to be there and finally to have someone recount for you a dream that you've had in your head, a dream that you've never told to anyone else. In fact, the text told us last week, the dramatic moment was that Nebuchadnezzar forced his magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans. He brought them into his chamber and he said, you tell me the content of my dream. And they couldn't do it, of course. And now here finally in the dramatic moment is someone, a Hebrew slave standing in his presence. Imagine what that would have been like for Nebuchadnezzar to have the contents of his head revealed to him by someone else. Incredible. And I imagine something clicked in his head. I imagine something happened in his heart. And I, I wonder if, it, if Nebuchadnezzar found himself being opened up to new spiritual possibilities. Now, the content of itself, if you look back at the text, the content is this image of a colossal person. This image is mighty and frightening, and there's precious metals involved. There's gold, silver, bronze, iron that's mixed with clay. And then set in contrast in the vision is this stone. Did you see that? And the text says the stone is cut out by no human hand. In other words, the text is making a contrast to the first image, which is very clearly an image crafted by human hands using precious materials, gold, silver, bronze. But, but this second image is being presented as an alternative. It's not cut out by human hands. It originates from somewhere else. And in the dream, that alternative, this stone, it strikes the image on its feet of iron and clay so that it crumbles into dust and virtually disintegrates carried away. 
like chaff by the wind. And there you have it. That's the dream. And then next, Daniel, look at verse 36. Daniel says, now I'm going to give you the interpretation. I'm going to be the truth teller now. I'm standing in your presence and I'm going to speak truth to you. I'm going to be the truth revealer. You remember last Sunday we talked about how God has decided in his wisdom to fill his people, his church with his representatives, with his Holy Spirit so that they have access to the meaning of God's heart in the world and they can stand and be truth tellers. On Thursday night, I had the most powerful experience. I was invited by a group of black faith leaders in our community to come downtown for a prayer gathering. And we were there praying and standing in solidarity. And there, had, there were people who had gathered in Pioneer Courthouse Square. Some of them had gathered to protest. Some of them were just passing by. But there was a large crowd, a thousand people, and they had a microphone and they started passing the microphone around to some of these black faith leaders and they were speaking to the crowd. And there was this powerful moment where this pastor grabbed the microphone and I'll I'll never forget this moment for the rest of my life. He's speaking to this crowd of thousands of people. They have no idea what they've gathered for. And he started to say to them, I want you to know that I am not a doctor. I want you to know I'm not a lawyer. And I'm thinking, where is he going with this? Oh, he said, I'm not a doctor, but if I was a doctor, I would talk to you about what I know about. I would talk to you about medicine. I'm not a lawyer, but if I was a lawyer, I would talk to you right now about what I know about, which is the law. But I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a pastor. And that means I'm a carrier of good news. And so today I need to talk to you about what I know about. And then he started to preach. And I mean preach. And I'm looking around at thousands of people. And this pastor is preaching truth. He's talking about Lazarus raised from the dead and the Christ who raised him. And I thought, this is awesome to stand and be a truth teller in that moment. And here's Daniel. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 36, he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So I just want to, I want to stop and, and, and show you what the emphasis of that first few verses are. Ultimately, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you actually are the head of gold. But the the clear emphasis in this two verses is on a prior truth, a, a truth behind that truth. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but that's actually not the most important thing I'm trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is that that place of authority, that throne that you're sitting on, you're not sitting there because of anything in you, because of your power or might or glory or ingenuity or any, you are there for one reason. And one reason only, because God's given it to you. That's why you're there. And you got to get into that room. I mean, this was the 
most dangerous thing Daniel could say. This is the kind of thing that gets you thrown to lions. And actually, historians say there probably were lions chained to each side of Nebuchadnezzar's throne. So for Daniel to stand and say this was life-threatening. And yet here he stands. And it was a shocking piece of information for a king because ancient kings always thought, I am the son of God. They thought they were deities. So the reader understands this. It's a theme in Daniel. We've talked about it time and again. God is in control of the people who think they're in control. The reader knows it. Daniel knows it. But Nebuchadnezzar's catching up. Here he is hearing this 20, 19-year-old Hebrew slave, Hebrew prisoner of war, say to him, there's only one reason why you're on that throne, and it's because God's given it to you. Incredible. And so we keep reading. Daniel goes on, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise and after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. So four kingdoms, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And let me just pause to point out that if you notice, there's, there's patterns happening here. There's, the first pattern is there's a pattern of declining quality. Declining quality from gold to silver to bronze to iron. So there's a constant downgrade happening throughout human history, and it's continual, and it's a pattern. But the second pattern is an increase in hardness from gold to silver to, iron, to bronze, an increase that goes all the way to iron of the capacity to shatter and destroy and break. And of course, these four kingdoms have traditionally been identified, and I think rightly so, with the four major kingdoms Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which they were immediately followed by the Medo-Persians. That's silver. And they were followed by Greece. Think Alexander the Great. That's bronze, which was then followed by Rome. It's not a coincidence that we consider the transfer from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age to happen right at the time that Greece was declining. Rome was increasing. And so we have these four kingdoms. And Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar this hundreds and hundreds of years before any of these things happen. But then when it comes to this fourth kingdom, Daniel, he slows down and he takes extra time. Look at how he describes. He says the thing about that fourth kingdom, though, is that it's made of iron, but there's a hidden weakness. There's a frailty that gets to the heart of human insufficiency. And it's captured in this image of feet that are a mixture of things that don't go together, iron and clay. And so he says, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. There's going to be a problem. It's going to be weak. It's going to be fragile. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So it's strange, but Daniel's saying the strongest of all the kingdoms will also be divided. It will be vulnerable. It will, it will be frail. Partly strong, partly brittle, so that it won't hold together. And then, Daniel says, then comes the stone. 
a completely different kind of kingdom, an alternative, totally other. Friends, we need intervention from the outside. Daniel knew it. If anyone knew this in human history, Daniel knew this. And we know it. We're feeling this right now. We need help. We need someone, something from the outside. And Daniel says, I promise you, Nebuchadnezzar, it's coming. And it's going to be like a stone cut from a mountain, not by human hands. Look what he says. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, I need to tell you something. What I'm talking about, I'm not telling you that this might happen. I'm not telling you that I hope this happens. I'm not telling you that this could happen. I'm telling you that this is going to happen. What a moment. And friends, I want to press a truth into your hearts today. The kingdom of Jesus is everything that the kingdoms of this age are not. Let me say that again. The kingdom of Jesus is everything that the kingdoms of this age are not. The kingdoms of this world, they're human-centered. They're human-glorifying. They're always flawed. They're always frail. They always have problems. And all of their radical insufficiencies get exposed in the bright light of the kingdom that Jesus brings. They get exposed. They're seen for what they really are. See, the kingdom of God does not come to exist side by side with human kingdoms to play along. The kingdom of God comes in part to expose them, but ultimately to replace them. And to that, the Christian says, hallelujah, praise God. We need outside intervention. Please, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We need you. That pattern of declining quality and increasing brutality is a pattern for human history. We've seen it. Human kingdoms, they don't get any better, okay? This pattern of decline in the dream, it's the pattern for history, even up to the present. No matter how bright are the promises of the human-centered project, the Enlightenment project, secular humanism, the claim that if humans can just become more educated, more sophisticated, we will finally be able to build a utopian society. All of those problems, the reality is that all of those kingdoms, all the kingdoms of this earth that depend on human ingenuity, human wisdom, they always are flawed. And not only that, they always fail. And you know, throughout human history, it's been tempting for 
people, whatever kingdom or style of government they're in, it's been tempting to always think, ourselves included, finally, this is the ultimate form of government. We've reached utopia, right? Even Christians have been tempted to think this in whatever country they live in, whatever system they're a part of. It's always easier to look out and, and point out failed states out there, but part of the message of Daniel is that the United States is not the kingdom of Jesus. It's just as flawed, just as broken, just as frail. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that. I remember when I was a kid growing up, I would watch movies and I, I noticed even as a child that in movies that were made by Hollywood, the United States was always portrayed as the hero in the world. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we have a character named Captain America, <laughs> all right? And I love Captain America. He's popular in my home. My girls, Chris Evans, is a, he's a very popular guy. That's another story. But so think about it. That, that was how I grew up. And now, more recently, a lot of movies are going in the other direction and they are portraying the United States as the great evil. But what if the truth is somewhere in the middle? which of course we know it is. What if the truth is that the United States, just like every other nation, every other kingdom, every other form of government, it's a strange and painful mix of good and evil, progress and regress. I mean, for heaven's sakes, the United States represents progress and freedom, but it also is mixed with fraud and corruption, injustice, failure, the blight of slavery, racial tension going back hundreds and hundreds of years and somehow mixed, mixed together. And we feel that and we know that. And the people of God have always been encouraged in Daniel's day and in ours, they've always been encouraged to transfer their trust off of whatever kingdom they're a part of, whatever government they're a part of, and and say, this is not our salvation. Our salvation has to come from the outside, a better king, a more righteous kingdom. That's the message of Daniel. And so notice, look back at the text at 44. Notice the traits that Daniel uses to describe the characteristics of the kingdom of Christ. He, He says, I'll just do this quickly. He says, verse 44b, he says, the, the kingdom of Jesus will be indestructible. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It will be final. He says, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Babylon was left to the Persians. Persia was left to the Greeks. Greece was left to the Romans, on and on and on. But not the kingdom of Jesus. It will be final. It will never be left to anyone else. It will always be held in the hand of King Jesus. It's indestructible, it's final. The kingdom of Christ will be irresistible. Or he could substitute a more negative word, overwhelming, because Daniel says this kingdom will break in pieces all these other kingdoms and bring them to an end. And one of the ways it will do do that is by exposing how flawed they are and then drawing people into the kingdom of Jesus in an irresistible way so that they become members of a better kingdom, another city, a heavenly city. It'll be irresistible. And finally, it'll be supernatural, a stone cut by no human hand. Powerful. You say, wait, how did you jump so quickly to Jesus? You you, you describe this as the kingdom of Christ. How are you getting Jesus from the Old Testament? How did you know that this is describing the kingdom of Christ? Well, 
this image of the stone tells me so. It's a stone cut out of a mountain by no human hand. And you know, you can actually trace the image of a stone from Genesis to Revelation. Consider the following verses that start all the way back, way before Daniel, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, where there's imagery of a stone that gets traced throughout human history and it culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Genesis 49, 24, an amazing prophecy of the Messiah says, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That's Genesis. And then you move ahead into the Psalms. Here's Psalm 61, verses two and three that says, from the end of the earth, I call to you, Daniel's crying out, God, hear my voice, hear my cry. From the end of the earth, I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Verse three, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. David says, if you, if you look to this rock with dependence and faith, the rock will become for you a refuge and a strong tower. But then later in Psalm 118, David says, but if you reject that stone, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected, it will become a cornerstone. And then you fast forward to Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, which says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken. Does that sound familiar? And they shall be snared and taken. Genesis, Psalms, Daniel, Isaiah. And then King Jesus arrives on the scene and he teaches and preaches and he tells parables. And in one parable that he tells in Luke 20, we'll get back to Luke someday, but here's Jesus in Luke 20 and he, he tells a parable where he likens his own rejection to the killing of a vineyard owner's son who is the rightful heir. And he says, your rejection of me, he says this to the religious leaders of the day, he says, that's, that's like this parable where the, the vineyard owner's son is, is murdered by the, by, the, by the group of rebellious tenants who had who'd been left tending the land. And when he finishes the parable, Jesus takes all of this stone imagery and he applies it to himself and he says, but he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? Which is always a reference to the Old Testament. What's written? And Jesus says, verse Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says, Isaiah 8, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces. And he says, Daniel 2, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And what Jesus is doing here is he's ending his parable by saying, as he predicts his own execution, he's tying his execution to this image of a stone that comes from heaven. He is the one. Jesus is saying, don't you realize, I am the one that Daniel talked about. I'm the one who's been cut out of a mountain, cut out by no human hand. And my kingdom will bring down all human kingdoms and my kingdom will usher in something eternal and it will never be passed on to anyone else. And you say, Pastor, what does this mean for us right here, right now? I'll tell you what it means. It means we never should 
totally despair. Folks, we never need to totally despair. Some despair is normal, and many of us are feeling despair. Some despair is normal, but total despair would be wrong biblically because we know that King Jesus is on the move in our world and he will overcome. Amen? Jesus will overcome. Yes, our nation is hurting. Yes, our nation is outraged. Yes, our nation is embroiled in tension and anger. Rightly so. People are hurting. But the very best conversations that we can have, especially the church, the people of Jesus, the very best conversations that we can have, those conversations should reject all-out despair on one extreme, but they should also reject denial on another extreme. It does no good to be completely despairing, and it does no good to deny the problem. Somewhere in the middle is this way of King Jesus, and I'm here to tell you that's the way I want to choose. Not because of anything in me, but because King Jesus is on the move. He's on the throne. His kingdom is the kingdom that we need. Jesus Christ first brought his kingdom in his, in his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And the Bible tells us that King Jesus is coming again. And when he returns, he'll finish what he started. Hallelujah. But in the meantime, the church has been left with the responsibility to partner with God as God spreads his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, through declaring truth, through being people who bring the interpretation of God's heart and God's meaning. And I want to contribute to that, my friends. Well, let's finish the story. Just a couple verses here. Here's how the story ends. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar, this is interesting, King Nebuchadnezzar fall upon, fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel and he commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. That's Daniel. And this is really weird because in the Bible, anytime people of God are worshipped by another human being, they reject it. And Nebuchadnezzar is clearly worshipping Daniel. And the text, I don't know why, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't tell us why Daniel rejected this didn't reject this. Maybe he did. I, 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 it's possible. But I think that the, 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 the narrator is driving to a different point here, and it's what, what's happening in, in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. There is a change happening, but what we're going to see is it's, it's really, really embryonic. It's, it's, it's not complete. It says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And you're reading it, it sounds like the king is actually giving glory to God, but it's, it's really flawed, it's really impartial. He, he doesn't actually understand the God that Daniel is talking about yet. And he doesn't ask any questions about this God and he doesn't show a repentant heart. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to need more intense measures before he's going to fully be converted. But conversion is coming. Full repentance, full humiliation, and a full turn to Yahweh, creator God, is coming. And this moment reveals he's not there yet. Then it says, The king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, 
and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And so it's amazing. Daniel chapter 2 ends the exact same way Daniel chapter 1 ended, where these Hebrew prisoners of war, these teenagers, they find themselves elevated to the highest place once again in Babylonian society. They're in positions of influence in the Babylonian system. And, And it's this theme that we talked about in week one. What do we do when we find ourselves in Babylon? What do we do when we find ourselves... In, in a kingdom or a government or a country that's deeply flawed, what do we do? Do we, do we scream and yell and, and, or do we turn on each other and fight? Do we divide among ourselves? No, absolutely not. The Bible is clear over and over and over again. The key is for the church to unite together and to seek to be a blessing. Be a blessing in Babylon. This is what Daniel does. Seek the, seek the well-being of the city that you're a part of. And so, friends, I want to, I want to end by, by talking a little bit about what I think we should be doing in these days. Our nation is hurting. Our city is hurting. Our community is hurting. Many, many in our church, myself included, are hurting. And you say, what are we supposed to do? We need to seek to be a blessing. You say, what does that look like? I... I'll be honest with you, I am figuring that out myself in real time, but I I know a couple things for sure that I am committed to that I think we should be committed to as a church. I think we need to stay united. We need to keep listening to each other. We need to keep leaning in. We need to keep reaching out. In our church, we have people from all kinds of different backgrounds with different experiences. Some of those experiences are experiences of racism and injustice. We need to listen and love and care for one another. And I'm talking to me. But we need to pray and we need to fast like Daniel's taught us. And so I'm committed to that. I'm committed to praying and fasting. I'm inviting you. Will you do that with me? The Plow Organization released some really helpful um, some really helpful guidelines for how to pray and fast in this time along with a lot of other things. We'll, we'll post a link to that on our webpage if you want to learn how to pray and seek God in fasting in this time and, and come before God and even say, God, would you expose areas in my life where I need to repent and, and share my own guilt? It's a beautiful thing to do. We need to keep learning and listening. Western Seminary is hosting... A week from, uh, in the, this coming Saturday, they're hosting a webinar called A Biblical Response to Racial Injustice. And our leadership team have all signed up for that. I'm inviting you. That, that might be a great thing that you decide. I want to learn more. I want to be a learner. I want to be humble as I, as I watch my nation racked in the pain and the hurt of, of, of racial injustice. I want to learn, what does the Bible say about this? And finally, here's what I'm committed to most. I'm going to keep my hope and my focus on Jesus, and I'm calling you. Will you do the same? I'd like to pray about that right now as we continue in worship. Will you bow your heads with me? King Jesus, the stone, the stone that was cut from the mountain by no human hand, the rock that we can run to, a refuge, a shelter, 
a stone that if rejected, it becomes the cornerstone of the whole foundation of a mighty growing building. And sadly, as people reject that stone, they trip and stumble and it crushes them and whole kingdoms and nations and governments will, will vanish. But to all who flee to that rock, to all who stand on that rock, King Jesus, to all who go to that rock to drink living water, that rock becomes a refuge and a shelter and a place of salvation. And King Jesus, we turn to you and we long for you to return. We love you. We love your kingdom. We need your kingdom. We need your help. Please, King Jesus, will you come? Return, and, but, but may it begin now in our own hearts as we represent you in this world. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.